we don't want to be successful because of being successful. We want to be successful because we're chasing a feeling. Welcome to the Competitive Mindset Podcast. Each interview, we talk to leaders who differentiate themselves and achieve high levels of performance through the lens of motivation, competitiveness, and mindset. These conversations lead to thought-provoking idea sharing and growth, accompanied by entertaining storytelling. Welcome along on our journey to lifelong learning, improved performance, and a look inside the competitive mindset. If you're enjoying the competitive mindset and you have someone you would like to hear interviewed on the podcast, please reach out to us via social media at competitive pod, and we will work to schedule so you can dive into their competitive mindset. Billy Keckler basketball is scheduling for summer camps. If your youth program or high school teams are looking for out of season skill and team development, BKB will come to your community and instruct skills and concepts that fit into your program's mission. For more information and inquiries, email Billy Kegler basketball at gmail.com. BKB is a unique player experience. The Greatest Games Podcast interviews coaches of all levels about the greatest games they have ever been a part of. Chris and Brian post two episodes per week that explore these great games and also takes a dive into each coach's journey and some lessons that they have learned along the way. Catch the Greatest Games Podcast on all podcast platforms as well as thegreatestgames.podbean.com. Mike is a keynote speaker and performance coach teaching strategies and skills of mindset to drive performance from his platform, MindShift Labs. He's also the author of the book, Untrain. Mike Lee, welcome to the Competitive Mindset Podcast. Thanks for having me on, man. Good to chat with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation and seeing where it takes us. So let's dive right in. Tell me about your journey and how it's led you to where you are right now. Back in 2003, during the sophomore year in college, and a buddy of mine, and John Wilcom, uh, we decided we wanted to run a basketball camp in our hometown of Marshfield, Wisconsin. We just wanted to create an experience for kids so they didn't have to drive three, four hours to get a, a quality basketball experience during the summer. And we hired some uh, local coaches, a guy by the name of Dave MacArthur and Joe Konichny, and we ended. We ran a camp. At the end of the first camp, we had close to 100 kids that had shown up, and by year three, we were close to 300 kids. I was graduating college that year, and instead of going down a path of coaching college basketball, I decided to try and scale this camp into multiple camps across the state that turned into camps across the country that turned into events quite literally across the world and a basketball training facility that we had for uh, close to a decade in Milwaukee. And that has, that's really been, been the journey. And, and a few years ago, I kind of bridged my, my background in the mental performance side of the game that we were teaching on the court, all the sports performance psychology principles with mindfulness, emotional intelligence, and meditation to help people unlock performance and personal leadership in the organizational space, associations, working with companies, and even school districts to just help their their teachers, their staff, their uh, individual contributors, their leadership teams level up their leadership and their performance. So can you talk to me a little bit about the drive to start that camp and training business 
from what you mentioned, rather than going into college coaching, what was the the moment or the tipping point that said, no, I'm going to switch gears and go this direction? Well, a big factor behind it was I did still think I wanted to coach college basketball, but I basically was a bench player at UW-Stout, and so me getting on staff at a Division One college was going to be incredibly difficult. And if I, I basically saw that I had two routes. I could go the manager route and maybe be a GA and do laundry and do all the dirty work and, and go down that route and do that for the next 10 years, hoping that I could get uh, get on staff somewhere. Or I could build this company. I could create an AAU program. I can start working with these kids when they're in sixth, seventh grade. I can work with them through high school. And if I'm good enough, if I'm as good as I think I am, and these kids start to get recruited and the coaches come to see our team play and they see the, the skill level of the kids that we've been working with for the past five years and build a program around that, then I'll be able to uh, develop relationships that way and get on staff and I'll be able to do what I love in the process versus cleaning the gym floor and doing laundry and, and doing, going down that path. There's nothing wrong with that. I think, you know, that's work for guys for sure. I just, I, I wanted to be on the court and working with players because I knew even if my resume didn't say it at the time that I could make an impact now, I didn't have to wait 10 years to do it. So everything you mentioned there had to do with their skill set from a basketball standpoint. Can you tell me what the light bulb moment was when you realized that mental performance was really the key and then you are transitioning to that? Yeah, I mean, we obviously were incorporating it for quite a while before we started formally doing anything with it. I mean, I look back on, if anybody on here is familiar with Facebook memories, I look at some of the stuff that I was posting on social 10, 11, 12 years ago even, and they definitely are relevant to the mental performance side of the game. And I know those things were coming through our messaging to players and coaches indirectly, and that's something that we really did intentionally. But it really, you know, we really started to change our thinking around it when we were running these, we started running these coaches academies, and essentially they were coaches clinics, but solely focused on individual player development. We didn't do any X's and O's, zone offenses, and everything else that you'd see at a normal coaches clinic. We built it all around player development. And after we had ran it for a couple of years, I kind of, I was thinking about how do we, you know, what really goes into developing the complete player? And the light bulb moment was I realized, you know, most players are working on their individual skills. They're working on their bodies, but very few players are training their mind intentionally. And I think now in today's game, Working on your body and working on your skills are the required price of admission just to give yourself a chance to compete at a high level. If you want to get to the next level, if you want to give yourself an edge against somebody who has equal skills, who has equal uh, conditioning and, strength and, uh, and an equal body, for lack of better terms, you know, at the highest level, everybody's 6'3", 6'5", 6'6", long, athletic, can handle it, can shoot it. 
what is going to give you an edge, and that edge is, is your mind. At that point, we kind of realized that, all right, if we want to, if we want a player to maximize their potential, they have to be working on their body, they have to be working on their skills, and they have to also be intentionally working on training their mind. And I think a lot of coaches, uh, we expect players to bring these mental skills to the table, and we all believe that they're important. I think if you if you pulled coaches across all sports from the middle school level all the way through the Olympic level, every single coach would say that the mental side of the game is crucial. But then if you would ask all of these coaches, even at the Olympic level, well, how many of you are intentionally carving out time to work on your player's mind, just like you work on their vertical or their lateral movement or extending their range, <laughs> a majority of them would say that they're not doing it. And so we knew that there was a disconnect there when you could actually provide players with tools and exercises and strategies in order to shift their mind to be able to compete in an ultra-competitive environment. So you mentioned at the outset that indirectly you were always doing mental performance stuff, but then shifted to directly doing it. Can you inform me on how you educated yourself or gained knowledge in order to more adequately prep your players with mental performance? A lot of it starts with reading and just self-study, right? I just have always been a lifelong learner and somebody's been reading on coaching and leadership and personal development for the past 15 years. And I think a lot of it started with just what problems am I having in my own life and how can I solve these first in order to be able to authentically teach some of these skills to somebody else. Uh, but I think it really, you know, it started with reading. I was reading John Maxwell and Jim Rohn and John Wooding and Robin Sharma and all these these leadership icons. And everything really kind of shifted when I decided to get off this antidepressant medication that I had been on for, at that point, the last 14 years. Getting off of it was quite literally like getting off of heroin and I knew that in order to win this battleground that had been created in my mind, that I needed a tool, I needed help, I needed something to uh, help me access the present moment. I would just, I was in these states of chronic emotional instability, from laughing to crying to crazy anxiety to deep, deep, deep states of depression. And I needed something to access the present moment because in the present moment, we really get objective, we need nothing in the present moment. And lots of us, myself included, you know, we spend a lot of our lives in, in the past planning and worry and fear and anxiety. And we spend a lot of our lives in the future in planning and worry and fear and anxiety and in the past and regret, guilt, shame, or anger. And, you know, when we look at all the experiences that we want to have in life and when we want to perform at our highest level, when we want to tap into that state of being in the zone, all of that happens in the present moment. Relationships, connection, empathy, performance, creating the future all happen in the present moment, and that's something I can access. And so I picked up a meditation practice, and I committed to it, and 
I saw why athletes like Kobe Bryant, CEOs like Steve Jobs, investors like Ray Dalio all had meditation practices. And that's because your brain physically changes. Just like when you take up a or commit to a, a training program and you see physical evidence of change in your body, there are, are areas of your brain that change as well. And these, I, I knew that the skills that we had already been teaching, like I talked about before, like being able to connect with the player and just be fully present and show up and develop that relationship so that you can build trust so that you can challenge them. That happens in the present moment. I was able to do that more. Your ability to master distractions, your ability to stay calm under pressure. All these things were elevated when you had a, have a meditation practice and there are areas of your brain that change that are in correlation to these skills like self-awareness, decision-making, and your ability to stay calm under pressure. So it's kind of when I went through that experience, I knew that there were, that led me down a road of discovering other tools and other things that you could do in order to, to maximize that. So part of mindfulness in my mind is visualization. Can you talk to me about visualization and what it does for people as a tool? Yeah, since you brought up mindfulness and visualization, I think it'd be really helpful for people if we kind of defined what these actually are. Because uh, I think you know, mindfulness, especially with COVID, mindfulness and meditation, especially with COVID, has kind of permeated pop culture. I mean, it's been, I've never seen more about it in the news, in the media, and on social. You know, everybody's talking about it because we are, you know, we are experiencing unseen, unprecedented levels of stress, anxiety, and, and mental health issues. And it's a tool to be able to combat that. And so I think it'd be helpful for people because when I first started going down this road, I didn't, I didn't, people would ask me what I was doing and I didn't know how to define it. Myself. I finally had to come up with uh, some definitions. And so I'll define a few of these. So meditation or uh, uh, mindfulness first. Mindfulness is the skill or the ability to create the awareness, the non-judgmental awareness of your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions in the present moment. And another term that or skill that people talk about is that's related to mindfulness is emotional intelligence. That's a huge skill for uh, coaches when they are dealing with players that they're frustrated with or or dealing with pressure situations in games, things like that. And that emotional intelligence is creating awareness of what's driving my thoughts, what's driving my feelings, what's driving my actions. And that's really the power of mindfulness is getting to that second layer of figuring out what's driving everything. And then meditation is nothing more than an exercise to be able to train these higher levels of awareness. And meditation is kind of like the word sport. Right? When we talk about sports, there's baseball, football, hockey, basketball, whatever it is, right? And when there's meditation, there are, there are tons and tons. I think I read a study there that is like a thousand different types of meditation. And so meditation might cover the categories of mindfulness meditation or visualization or mantra-based meditation or, uh, or uh, insight meditation. Like there's so many different types of uh, meditation. And specifically what I'm, you know, 
what I got into was a mindfulness and that led me down a whole other road. So now to answer your question around visualization, you know, there's different types of visualization. You know, the two that I'll, I'll speak to are really number one is vision. What is, what is a vision of the future that I'm trying to create? Second is mental rehearsal. And I think that's probably more relevant to what you're speaking to. And that's more so rehearsing a physical skill in your mind to create the same connections as if you were physically practicing, the same connections in your brain as if you were physically practicing. So I'll tell, I'll, I'll give you a short story as to the, the power of a mental rehearsal practice. Or I think this will help bring it to life for some people. So back when Bronson Caning was a, a senior at Wisconsin, I had been, I'd been working with Bronson uh, for a couple of years at that time on his individual skills and nutrition and watching game film and pretty much anything that uh, he could do to improve his, his individual skills. And it got to be about uh, January, senior year, and I got a text from him, and I said, can we talk? And we got on the phone, and he went on to tell me that he was really in his head about an upcoming game that they had against Indiana. And I asked him, well, why? What's the deal with Indiana? And he said, I've never played well against Indiana, and we've never won at Indiana my entire career. And so at this point, uh, Bronson, you know, going back to what I was talking about before, we had built up enough trust that he was pretty much willing to try anything that I would suggest to him. So I asked him how he felt about trying a visualization practice. And in this visualization, he would, in his mind, in his mind's eye, he would he would put himself into assembly hall 10 days into the future. He would visualize the student section, the red and white colors, and the smell of the arena, and the crowd, and the opposing team, and the plays he wanted to make out of the court. Anything that he could do with his five senses in order to put himself into that future situation. And so he went through this practice. He sat and he visualized for about 10 minutes every day shots he wanted to make and everything that I, that I went through. Until about a week or so later, I turned on ESPN. I was sitting on the couch and I was watching the Badgers play at Indiana. And at the beginning of the game, Bronson banged three threes and Wisconsin went up. They went up 13 to zero and Tom Crean called a timeout about two minutes into the game. And Bronson went on to have his best game that he ever played against Indiana. And I think he went five for five for the three-point line. So obviously I was super happy for him, but I was really curious about was, you know, how did he, how did he think that this visualization practice that he had been going through for the past uh, week leading up to the game had affected him, had affected his performance? So I texted him after the game and asked him what he thought. And I'll never forget his, his response back to me. His response was, when I stepped out on the court, I felt like I had already been there. I felt like I had already made the shots in that game. And so hopefully that paints a picture for people as to the, 
the power of having a visualization practice. It's really around preparation. It's really around preparing your mind so that you can drop into the moment, let your training take over. So that's a great example and a sports example. Can you give me a, a brief example of how it can be used outside of sport? Yeah, I think one example that I I think can apply to a lot of people right now, no matter what position you're in, is lots of us are, are having to have difficult conversations right now, whether that's with the players that we coach, somebody that we are in a relationship with, the people that we work with, and these difficult conversations are even more difficult because of the heightened stress you're dealing with. And so if you have to go into a difficult conversation, you know, one thing that you can do is go through this mental rehearsal process prior to it. Just think about bring into your mind's eye what you want to say, uh, how you want to show up. You can go back to your values. Like, how do I want to show up for somebody else? And visualize yourself. Maybe if it's bad, you know, tough news that you got to deliver to somebody about maybe their pay is getting cut because of the economy or, or whatever it is, think about how you want to communicate that with presence, with sincerity, with compassion, uh, and, and how you, and maybe even exactly what you want to say, rehearsing exactly what you want to say that, so that you know that the message is received with uh, a level of, so that the person receiving it knows your uh, the thoughtfulness that went into how you're going to deliver that. Uh, I think that's a that's a great way to or a great opportunity to practice mental rehearsal. Beautifully said, and thank you for explaining that so well. I think it's something that's really important and really helpful for people to learn how to do and make something part of their regular checklist on a tool that they use. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about competition. Yeah. Can you tell me what your mindset is in regards to what competition means to you now in your career as opposed to what it was earlier in your career? That's a great question. I, I think for me, competition has has really been shifted to be more about how can I be better every day? And this has really shifted over the past couple of years and more specifically really over the past six to 12 months. And the me being better every day has become much more about removing the blocks to who I actually am versus me having to strive to be better and to achieve more. And so what I mean by that is I believe that we all have this, this true authentic self that lives within us. And we're blocked to it because of the conditioning and the comparison that we live in in our society and the judgment and the criticism and the, the negativity and the self-doubt and, and all of those things that hold us back from who we actually are. And I think really learning to uh, be vigilant for 
vigilant to deny the ego, deny the doubt, deny the the negative self-talk, the criticism, the comparison, the negativity. Uh, deny that and really listen to the voice of who you actually are, which is the thoughts of the empowering thoughts, any empowering thought that you would have. Um, I think the more that you can deny the ego and listen to the voice for your higher self, that's becoming uh, the better version of yourself. And that's, that's how I compete against myself every day, which is probably not uh, a typical answer, but that's, uh, that's, how I, that's how I've shifted to define that. Before, it was about everything externally. It was about it was about being better than anybody else that was in industry that I was in. You know, I, I guess I'll give you an example, and it kind of goes into, I think, another question that you might ask around success. And, you know, I got to a point when I realized that the, the external accomplishments only fill temporary holes. What I mean by that is I spent, and it's something that I still battle with every single day, no question about it, but I'm trying to, to lessen its impact, I guess you could say, or lessen its uh, grip on me. But, you know, when I first started out, we talked about the, you know, the basketball business that I was building. It was, I, in my mind, it was when I can work out college basketball players, then I'll feel good about myself. Then, I, then I'll feel like I'm successful. And then it went from college players to Division One players to pro players, to overseas pros player, pro players to NBA players to working Nike Skills Academy. And like basically the only thing, you know, I've worked with NBA guys who have won NBA titles, guys who have been lottery picks. And, you know, basically at the highest levels of basketball, you know, the only player that I really have never worked with was somebody who's an Olympian. And so it finally got to the point where I was like, none of this stuff actually lasts. And, you know, when we, we talk about chasing success, we're really chasing a temporary state of happiness. You look at, like, anybody who wins, like, an NBA title or they, you know, sell their business for millions of dollars like you go and eat there's lots of studies that that have been uh done on this and, and it's it's never lasting yeah you know, i think one thing that covid has because we've had to disconnect from so many of the activities that we have whether that's you know playing basketball or your softball league or your uh, whatever it is all these external things i think it's it's made a lot of people realize that we spend and organize our lives around chasing external things, filling our, our time with external things to create temporary states of happiness. And now that we don't have all these external things, it, it can be a really uncomfortable position for a lot of us to be in. It goes back to like we we don't want to be successful because of being successful. We want to be successful because we're chasing a feeling. 
it's not about actually achieving something. It's about the feeling that achieving that thing creates. And you have to create awareness around what is actually driving you. So that feeling leads me into my next question. Are you yeah. driven by avoiding the fear of losing or seeking the joy of winning? The answer is both. I'm trying to move towards more to being driven by a vision of the future versus the fear of staying stuck in the past. But I think there's there's a way, you know, I was listening to a conversation uh, that one of my friends hosted on Clubhouse, and he's a, he's an artist, he's an entrepreneur, and he had a bunch of people on this session that were they're really successful in the in the music industry, and they're talking about the the creative process, and they're talking about how is basically, and I'll answer your question, but the question was around is great art created by states of joy or is it created by states of deep pain and the answer to me whether you're an artist you're an athlete you're an entrepreneur whatever it is is that moment of pain that moment of fear can spark a vision that's greater than your current circumstances so the vision of a greater future might be ignited by that painful experience that you went through that you want to solve and and that you want to teach others how to overcome or create something so that they don't have to go through the same thing. And I think when we can allow the the painful experience to create a vision of the future, that's when we can utilize the energy of both of them. And if you know you just you look at like, you know, I don't know who who said this. It was one. It was a mentor of mine, a coach of mine, that basically it was during the off season to keep players motivated. One thing that he he would always bring up to them was he's like, "I want." And this is a, you know, this is a visual visualization exercise. Really, he, he would say to them, "Close your eyes for a second and think about how you felt after you lost your last game last season and the pain of that." And how great it would feel to end your season winning your last game. <laughs> the reality of it is there's one team in each division in each state that actually goes out on top and wins their last game of the season. Everybody else, you know, everybody loses. There's no third place games or anything. So, well, in some states there are, but like you play college basketball and, you know, in the state of Wisconsin, like there's, there's no third place games, right? And so go, using that pain, from the past, that pain of losing that last game in order to ignite you to be focused on a vision of the future, a vision of winning a conference title, a vision of uh, getting a college scholarship, a vision of winning a state title. I think you can use both of them to spark energy. Beautifully said, and one quick story that I can add to that is in college we lost in the conference tournament championship game and our coach made us stay on the court and watch the other team accept their trophy and made us watch it and then recall those feelings and it's the exact same thing you talked about and there's more than one way to get at doing that absolutely so i want to 
transition again a little bit here and our conversations always go in multiple directions and you and I both promised each other we'd keep each other on track here a little bit, but I, I want to get off the rails just a touch when we talk about ideas and generating ideas, but then how are you able to take all of the ideas that you have and turn them into action? I think it starts with something bigger than that, and that's having a vision first. Right? Having a having a vision of the player that you're trying to become, the program that you're trying to create if you're a high school coach or a college coach, like the vision of that program, vision of that culture, the vision of the player that you want to be, the vision of that business that you're trying to create and the impact that you want to make. Right? And then you can filter all your ideas through that vision. I think everything should be built around we have this overarching vision and this mission that we have as a player, a coach, as, as a teacher, as a business owner, whoever it is. And then everything has to be, everything that you decide to take action on, your action items have to support that vision. If they don't support that vision, that's when we get pulled in all these different directions and we don't uh, make progress on who we're trying to become and, and what we're trying to create. So I think the first step is really getting clear on that vision. And then really it's, it's about setting up your day so that you can spend your time on those action items at the times when you have the most energy. I'll share this with, uh, with, with everybody, but for me, I try to do my as much creative stuff in the morning. So if I have to write, if I have to do something where I have to think strategically around something, I want to do that in the morning. If I do that towards the end of the day, my brain is done and I can't uh, focus on it as much. And that's where I'll do more things that are just the busy work, the, the things that uh, don't take much creative thinking to be able to do. And so, you know, setting up your day, whatever that, whatever that is for you, to be able to reflect the energy that you have during that time of day to create, to get those action items done. When you're trying to connect with a player, a coworker, a colleague, whatever it might be, and you're not able to get a response, they're not able to open up, what's a tool that you can use to try to reach them? There's, so, there's several things. Uh, number one, I think vulnerability is huge. Vulnerability creates a connection, and that connection creates trust, and that trust enables you to, to challenge a player and to challenge somebody to be better, to do more, to become more, to put in more work. And I think a lot of that starts with your own, own vulnerability, saying, I was there too. I know this is hard. I know this is not easy. And here's what I went through when I was in your position. And being able to connect with somebody on, on that level, I think, is, is really important. Uh, I think another thing to do is move it away from the tactical space. What I mean by that is, you know, if you're a, a coach, move it away from basketball. If you're a uh, leader in a school district, move it away from school. Like, bring it back to something personal 
to create that connection. I think it, it all comes down to how am I going to make this connection, right? So move it something vulnerable, you know, be vulnerable, open yourself up, move it to something personal. Third thing, you know, try to bring humor into it somehow. I think, you know, I would have never said this 10 years ago, but like, there are very, very, very few things that are actually as serious as you make that up to be. <laughs> so I think you know, using humor in some way to be able to just kind of create some levity around it is another another thing that you can do. So you're telling me you're going to become a stand-up comedian now, right? Yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> kind of with that and my joke about you becoming a comedian, can you tell me about an upcoming project you have and your motivations behind it? I'm writing a new book, actually. Some of you who are on this maybe have read the last one that I wrote. I'm writing a new book around resilient performance and personal leadership, and it's basically blending the worlds of sports psychology and mindfulness with probably a hint of spirituality on how to unlock the best version of yourself. All the projects are, are the same. I'm really doing virtual keynotes and workshops and individual coaching sessions. What types of things do you do uh, keynote speaking for? Right now, a lot of events have been shifted to virtual. So if you're in a, belong to an association or a company that is having their annual meeting online or quarterly leadership meetings, or you're just bringing in somebody to uh, change the voice on your, your Monday morning status meetings, I will you know, come on and do a virtual talk for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes on creating resilient leaders and performers within an organization. Awesome. So one final question to get you out of here with, to get you thinking, in a hypothetical situation, if you could have one superhero power, what would it be and what would you do with it? That's such a good question. <laughs> if I was going to create a superhero, I, if I had an unlimited capacity to love, that would be my answer. Unlimited, just completely limitless, no boundaries, no borders, no constraints, nothing. Limitless ability to love everything and everybody, that would be what I would pick. Beautiful. That is a one-of-a-kind answer, and I, I really love it. And part of that goes into me knowing you for quite a while now. We have conversations all the time that, that go a little bit deeper. So if people want to get in touch with you and learn about mindfulness or the resiliency with leadership and some of the things that you talked about, where can they reach you at? Best place is LinkedIn at who is Mike Lee, also over on Instagram, or you can drop me an email at Mike at MindShiftLabs.com. I will add that stuff in the show notes. Mike, I always enjoy your conversations. Thanks for coming on a Competitive Mindset. Thanks for having me on, buddy. Next time on Competitive Mindset, we bring you a week-long mini-series of entrepreneurs, and we look into their journeys into building successful businesses. Competitive Mindset Music was produced by DJ Jojo Moore, and all images were created by Elena Keel. Be sure to subscribe, rate, leave a review, and follow us.
at competitivepod.com.